Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we will be talking to Jamie Sherman, a cultural anthropologist that is working as a senior user experience researcher with the Intel Corporation. We will talk about how to make human insight actionable in the business world of virtual reality and gaming, about the value of user hacking in design, why in VR everybody talks to the robot dog, about the importance of ethics in developing games and hosting social interaction, and lastly, we will be talking about what it's like to work in business as a classically trained anthropologist. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, Jamie. Nice Hi. To- Nice to have you on our podcast show today. What, according to you, is technology and anthropology? And also, if you can speak a bit more to the applied anthropology angle, that would be awesome. So, um, yeah, I think for me, anthropology has always been a way of asking questions, right? So asking questions about how the world came to be. Why is it that we do it the way we do? What are the other ways of doing it? Um, and I should say that I came to anthropology through theater. I was a theater director. That's what I studied in college. And I was going to change the world through art. I was going to ask questions. I was using theater to ask questions and then doing performances to change the way people saw the world. Um, and then... At a certain point, I discovered anthropology and I said, hey, <laughs> this is a great way to ask questions about, about the same, so very, in some ways, very similar kinds of things. Like, why is the world the way it is? How did it come to be this way? What are the, what are the options? And then I came to work for Intel and I was thinking about this when, you know, before we started this podcast. And, and in some ways, I think I'm still on the same mission, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, except that in, in this case, I, I'm looking... Um, I really still think that that oftentimes, you know, even in the business world, right, where where it's like, is how do you see how we do business has everything to do with how we see the world. And so when I think about people and technology, which is what I think, you know, which is what I I think I really look at is is, um, as an anthropologist, then I bring that back to the business world. It's like, and, and it's a question of how do we see these things? Can we change the way we see the see things? And does that change the way we do business? Mm. So you asked about technology, and I should say that, that, you know, if you would ask me in general, what is technology? I think there's a very broad answer about technology being things that we use, <laughs> right? But I think that in the context of my, my work, certainly technology is really com- computational technology. So so I don't look at, you know, my graduate work was on bodybuilders. And so when I came to Intel, I made the, the claim that the, the technology of bodybuilding was relevant to the technology of compute. Um, but I don't look, I no longer really look at <laughs> at the the ropes and pulleys and cables that you look at in the gym, which are also a form of technology. But I look at computational technology in terms of computers and wearables and virtual reality. Mm. Tell us a bit more about your path with user research. Why, what is with user research for you? and, And how did you come to be in this field with Intel? I have a funny story. When I came to Intel, I was sitting in on meetings and that, you know, you're, you're in a new job and the words mm-hmm. are all new. And I came directly out of academia and I sat in a meeting and after one of the meetings I said, oh, they call them users. 
I, and I call them participants, and then I started calling them interlocutors, and now we call them users. <laughs> so, so for me, users are people, <laughs> you know, people who use technology. So, so that's that's a very simple way of of thinking about it. So, so in terms of user experience, to me, user experience is about the experiences of people. Mm-hmm. And so, what I really study is how people experience the world in relationship to technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and how they, you know, how that, how technology fits into the context of their everyday life, right? And so, um, I think the distinction between, that I would make sometimes between what people often think of as user research and what I do as an anthropologist doing research is that I often do um, fairly standard user research, right, in the sense that I'm looking at, um, you know, uh, I have a particular product in mind or a set of products or a particular technology in mind. I'm interested in that. But I really try to look at it in context. Um, so so mm-hmm. oftentimes I'll, I'll prefer to talk to, to households as opposed to talking to individuals or, or really trying to understand how people's everyday worlds look and then how does that technology fit into the flow of their everyday life or how does it change it? You know, what is the difference between you with a smartphone and you without a smartphone? Um, how does it, how does that, how does that different? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's hard to imagine now, right? I'm not that young. And I remember when, when cell phones were, were first sort of like becoming popular. And, and when I would talk to somebody on the cell phone, it was completely fascinating. I couldn't stop asking like, when, where are you? And where are you now? <laughs> and where are you now? <laughs> and today it's sort of a silly question, right? You don't even think to ask. It's just sort of obvious. Well, call me. Why didn't you call? Why are you not answering your phone? For goodness sake. <laughs> So it really does change the way we, we do certain things or we think about certain things. And it's almost almost hard to think back to the time before. But yeah. but nonetheless, to think about how does that, you know, what is that, what difference does that technology, how does that change your, your everyday life? And how is it continuous with the things you were already doing, mm. right? Because really, we, we still do many of the same things. We just do them differently. I really like the little story from the business side that you started uh, the answer with, because I think uh, in a certain way, we, when, you, when you call them users, you're also giving them a specific identity that sometimes is very counter to what you're trying to understand, right? When they become for you just the user and not necessarily the person, you kind of almost take away that context that gives that depth of understanding yeah. that can help you, you know, develop products. Before we go into the people themselves, I just wanted to ask you a question specifically about the people inside the company, you know, and, mm-hmm. and how, how do you see it from inside a company as an anthropologist, the process of them coming to term with people being people instead of people being just users? Well, first of all, it's, I think it's an ongoing project. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think that so so for me, uh, you know, coming, I you know, I think some people go through school and they study applied anthropology or they do projects where they were really looking already at technology. And so they were thinking about this and they had in their head um, that they were going to be working for a technology company. And that was not part of my story. My, my story mm-hmm. was much less uh, directed in that sense. I, I got interested in anthropology. And so I went and I studied um, anthropology. And for a while, I thought I was going to have an academic career and I was going to be teaching and then I ended up at Intel. Um, and so I had no, um, so it was all surprising. <laughs> I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it. And so for me, there was a, what I think of as often as a kind of, uh, you know, anthropology on both sides. So mm-hmm. I was doing research on user 
leaders as people. But at the same time, it's been, you know, five years now that I've been doing research on, 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 yes. on corporations and business. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 and how do you talk about stuff? Mm. And so, oh, you, okay, you call them users now. And we talk about business relevance. Mm. And <laughs> so I, it's, you know, it's acquiring all of this new, this new vocabulary. And what do you, you know, how do you say, how do you say that in business language? How do you say that in a way that, that makes uh, what I'm seeing outside the company um, legible for people that are inside the company um, and understandable and, and consumable and action, you know, and, and you know, we're saying actionable. How do I enable them to sort of do things with the things that, um, that I'm bringing back the kinds of frameworks or the kinds of understandings. And sometimes it's not, uh, it's not that simple, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we have different goals, you know, as, uh, you know, like we like to say about anthropologists that, that are, you know, we like to say it's complicated <laughs> and, <laughs> And when I was working with designers, they're like, I can't, I can't design complicated. You know, I don't, I don't design complicated. I design, <laughs> I have to know what are we trying to do? And so you had to really kind of think about it. When does, when does complicated add something and when does complicated mm. not add something? And, and, and from all the complications, what's the key thing that I need to bring out in order to help a designer, for example, design, uh, because they need to be able to use what I'm finding. And, and that's kind of an ongoing process of, of who you're working working with and how do you make what you're doing legible and, and usable for them? I think we will go get back to the business part um, later because I'm personally fascinated with this, with this topic. Being now in the business field, applying anthropology for thir three years, I've seen how critical it is for me to bring these two worlds together. And yeah. you know, the, the, the people inside and the people outside, they need to start seeing each other better and engaging and building joint narratives of, of the world and the product. So for me, it's a very deep interest on how, how we can, as an anthropologist, enable that connection. So I think that for me is very interesting, but I know that our listeners want to hear all about your work with virtual reality and gaming and going deeper into this topic of how people build relationships, what's the process of them building relationship with a specific piece of technology in that space? Um, and what does it mean for the people behind that build this kind of things? Yeah, I think I think that that's um, it's definitely really different. And it's a really exciting field, and I'm I'm still digging in, so I won't <laughs> say that it's not it's not done yet. I did a research project where we talked to people who don't play video games, and that was a, that was kind of the the one thing. There were two things I wanted to understand. One was if you don't play video games, then what are you going to do with this? And the <laughs> other thing <laughs> that I was really interested in understanding is, you know, we have this thing which is essentially kind of like having a bucket over your head with a string tied to the wall. Is that a problem and where does it go <laughs> like how are people thinking about it is there you know where does it go in your house what do you you know who owns it things like this and so we went to people's houses and we talked to where we could we talked to the whole family the whole household um, because I was interested also in like are there different opinions and, and of course there always are but but trying to bring those out um, as much as we could how that how that gets negotiated in a household where it's sort of a, a, a thing that, that affects the house but may or may not belong to everybody. And there were a few different things that were really interesting. One thing that really came, what I found interesting uh, was that uh, I call it everybody talks to the dog uh, because we were showing people we were showing people technology because not many people had tried it. And then after we showed it to them, then we had these conversations about what people could do. But one of the things that we showed people was a little um, 
a little piece of something called Vesper's Peak, which is part of uh, a, a bigger application called the Lab. And you're on a mountaintop, and there's a little robot dog, and you can you can pick up a stick, and the and the stick and the and the the robot dog responds to the stick. It'll jump up and down. It'll chase the stick. You can throw the stick. It'll dog will chase the stick and come back. Um, and so the dog responds actually to the stick. Um, but what's really interesting is that everybody talks to that dog. Everybody <laughs> talks to the dog. They say, hey, buddy. Hey, cute. They all got their dog voice on and they start talking to the dog. And you cannot help talking to that dog. And it's almost unremarkable, right? It took me till halfway through the study to say, wow, everybody, nobody talks to a dog on a screen. Mm. Nobody, I mean, we, we, we all watch cat videos or mm. dog videos, but we don't talk to that dog. <laughs> and we don't talk, We you know, we don't. We don't say, unless it's, you know, a Skype with your own dog, then you're not talking to the dog. So, so that was really interesting because what it said to me is that, is that a digital dog is actually in, in, in VR is actually a very mm. different thing mm. than an animated dog on your screen. It's, it's a different kind of, uh, it's a different kind of thing. You know, it's a digital dog. It's not a real dog. I'm not, you know, I'm not crazy. I can see it's a robot dog. It's only got one eye. <laughs> I'm not confused. <laughs> But that it actually is a different kind of thing. So you start to think about objects in VR are actually different from objects on a screen, even if it's the same digital, digitally speaking and technologically speaking, it could be the same object, right? I can look at a model of a, of a, of a book or a dog or, a, or something like that on my, on my letterbox screen, on my, on my laptop. And, and then in that case, it's actually quite a different thing than when I see it in VR. And that, that I thought was something really significant. And I'm still kind of thinking about how that matters, right? And, and, and why that matters to a company like Intel. Um, and so beginning, so we started with the challenge of how you bring that back and you have an insight and, and, and I'll, and I'll, you know, share, it's like, I don't know yet. Right. And so one of the responsibilities we have as ethnographers and as anthropologists is to think about, um, is to hold on to those insights and keep noodling away until Mm. I can begin to sort of tease out, I have that, you know, you have that inclination, you pick up on this pattern and you say, how does that matter? I don't know yet, but I'm going to hold on to it while I do my other work. You know, I can tell you right now, this is what they want to do. But actually, there's this interesting thing about the dog that I'm just going to kind of sit on for a while. Right. I was wondering, does it does it somehow linked into how people form their perceptions of what is real and what is constructed? I I think I don't know. I mean, I think that there's. yeah, you know, we had a very another very interesting conversation that we had internally that that I you know was a very interesting moment for me was earlier on when we first started looking at VR. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk about presence, and so um, and people talking about presence, and so and Intel being Intel and and like many businesses really wants to be able to measure things. And I say, well, if presence is what makes VR, we're going to measure, we should be able to measure what makes a good or bad VR experience by measuring presence. But then they had this problem of how do you measure presence? And so somebody, not me, <laughs> called together a, a rather large meeting of, of, of people, business people, planners, mm-hmm. you know, uh, researchers, a bunch of different people, um, marketing people, and we we're all in a room and they're saying, you know, well, what is presence? It was this wonderful moment in which there was sort of a very business sort of, a, a, you know, objective in which people ended up having the most philosophical conversation I've ever seen in um in uh, you know in a, in a business where they were sort of having this you know this this question is it is it 
is it um, imminence or, or is, is it suspension of disbelief? And does suspension of disbelief really have to be willing or can you have unwilling suspension of disbelief? Oh, wow. And that was, yeah. And that's actually because... <laughs> A very interesting question, right? Because mm -hmm. one of the things that some people say about VR is that you respond to it on a very, you know, much more in the way that you would respond to reality mm -hmm. and much less like you might respond to a movie or a book, right? So that in, in a movie or a book, you have to imagine that this is reality um, and you suspend disbelief in order to be immersed in the story, but that certain kinds of things, certainly when things jump out at you, for example, mm -hmm. and this is why they think it's effective for exposure the therapies, um, you respond to it as if it is real. Yeah. So the as if becomes unwilling as opposed to willing. Yeah, <laughs> right. It. Um, is that connected also to agency in some ways? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. So if you think about, so if you're, if you're, if you have a, an, uh, you know, a, um, I wouldn't even say unwilling necessarily, right? Because that impl implies that I don't want to. But you have a, a sort of. Um, automatic suspension of disbelief, mm -hmm. right? Um, then I don't know, does that change your agency? I think it changes your context, certainly, because you're responding from within the context of the digital world as, a as opposed to responding in relation to the digital world. Mm -hmm. It's so it's a very, it's hard to even articulate the yeah. distinction in words, right? Um, but I also have, I also have some reservations about that, right? Because again, I think back to this robot dog and I think I'm not confused, you know, I'm mm -hmm. really not. Yeah. I, I'm not, I, I'm not confusing this with a real dog, <laughs> But I am kind of, you know, uh, experiencing it differently. Um, I was just wondering, this might be a random question, but some people are a bit like um, wary of such technologies, like making claims like it disconnects people from reality or um, like it takes people away from what's really happening. Like, what would you say to sort of comments like that? I think it's like, well, well, maybe, um, but may, you know, yes and no, right? So I think that we we often have, um, you know, we're we're always sort of in these dialogues about, you know, this is destroying life. The newspaper destroyed life, and so did the book, uh, the printing press, uh, radio. TV in its turn. All of these have destroyed social life as we know it, and they're not wrong. You know, the the, the you know the book changed the world, mm -hmm. and and so did television. Television has completely changed the world as we know it. And so the people who are saying television is changing the world are not wrong. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, in the world in the post era of televisions, you know, and in fact perhaps really the demise of television. You know, it changed it, but it didn't, right? It didn't change. Um, and, and it also enabled new kinds of things. And so I think what we're going to find with something like VR is like, yes, it will change things. Um, it, it really will change the way the world works. But at the same time, it's going to open up new kinds of avenues and it doesn't change ultimately what it means to be human, right? So, so the internet enables you to connect in ways that you could never connect before and it creates disconnects in, in new mm -hmm. kinds of ways. Yeah. So, I, you know, it, it, at the risk of sounding like an anthropologist and saying it's complicated, it I is. think that the answer is always yes. Yes, it does. Or, or yes, but, or yes, and. Yeah. I was wondering, coming back to your um, question with the robot dog, <laughs> um, <sighs> when you have that kind of virtual experience, does anything change if you add another person in that experience? If there are like two or three people sitting on that mountaintop with that dog? So I, I actually think that if you cannot, if you, you know, ultimately, um, you know, so long as virtual reality is an individual experience, it's a very limited kind of, kind of technology, right? Uh, to me, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, we are such social creatures yeah. that that being able to be social with other people in a context is is absolutely critical to the you know to to that technology really going anywhere. Uh, so uh, so yes, I think it's. I mean, I think that the that that's. It's for me. It's very difficult to envision a future in which you cannot be social with that dog with other people, um, and in fact, um, I think you know there's some. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an old, like, 1960s, they did this really interesting sort of film about public spaces. There was a social science. I can't even, I have to remember it, so so remind me later mm-hmm. to look it up. Um, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that they did these observations of public spaces in New York City. I think it was New York City. And they were looking at how people relate or don't relate to each other. And one of the things that they found is that people triangulate. So people were more likely to be social when there mm-hmm. was a, th- uh, when there was two people were more likely to be social was when there was a third thing that they were both looking at, whether it was like a clown or a, an artwork or something like that. And so that these focal points Uh, you know, became very important to enabling people to relate. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's relevant um, both to, um, certainly in VR, and that these things, you know, the the virtual objects and the virtual dogs also become not only something that you interact with, but that that you interact around. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, you certainly see that in in online gaming already with the kind of, you know, the the multiplayer games, that that those games, if you speak to gamers who play with other people, that the game becomes, you know, is an end in itself, but it also becomes a way in which people begin to relate to each other because you start to have conversations, uh, what I think of as interstitial kinds of conversations, like you start to have a conversation in the waiting room before the before the, the, the mission begins or different kinds of things that then um, that again ripple out into other kinds of relationships, right? Yeah. So those... So it's another way in which we, um, again, it's sort of it's very different, right? A, a multiplayer online shoot 'em up game, uh, for example, is very different from playing with a robot dog on a mountaintop. But, but I think that they will find that certain things will, you know, will will function like that, yeah. and that there will be things that we we relate around. I think one of the things that it, um, your story made me think about was the agency that that you have as player, especially in a virtual reality environment, to construct what happens next. To, to design and to be engaged in, in the action um, in a way that is not predetermined. Um, I had a conversation, I think, a few months ago with this guy that was working for a startup in Texas around a virtual reality game uh, with a very ma- a magic kind of ecosystem, similar to Harry Potter. Right. And he was telling me that in the beta testing, they've built this uh, this universe to populate with people, that, everything in VR, and, and they had an algorithm to teach them how to use the wands. That was very much... Right coming from how in the Harry Potter thing it ha- it happens right that you have you have a um a paper that you have all the rules and then you're going into VR and you're using your wands and what they actually right. discovered is that what people were doing was they were gathering together in into these little huts not starting the game but actually giving wand lessons to each other Oh, interesting. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so, so uh, yeah. And he was like, well, you put, for him was like, man, you put them out there in groups and they don't, you don't control the narrative anymore. Um, so they yeah. don't, they don't follow the, the predetermined steps of the game. So for him, that yeah. was very frustrating because then yeah. <laughs> it was like, they have to go through these steps so that I know if they're good or bad. <laughs> Right. That reminds me of a, I mean, I think that's really important, right? Because people don't follow the rules. And, and I think oftentimes in technology companies and in, and perhaps in companies broadly, but, but it's certainly in, in business, people, um, 
design products and services with with rules in mind. This is what it's for. Um, And that's true that this could be what it's for, but people don't follow the rules. People will not use what it's for. And in fact, oftentimes the first thing they try to do is break it. And and that's not unusual, right? (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't wouldn't that be for the company a positive term of engagement? Like as long as they're not chucking it into the corner, but still like figuring it out. And wouldn't that be something positive? So I think so. Um, you know, I think oftentimes, I mean, I think that's part of the, the message also that we bring back, right? So so it, people find it very unnerving, right, to put something out there and have it be used in ways that weren't intended. Uh, and, and, you know, I as a researcher, that's exactly what I, you know, when I hear about that, I get very excited, right? I, I think at one point we were looking at uh, travel and we heard about these people who fly all over the world collecting miles. And I said, those people are really interesting. I really want to talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> and my manager at the time was like, was was a business, you know, very very business oriented man, and he was like, "That's awful," and I'm like, "No, it's wonderful." <laughs> so we had a very different perspective, but I think I think those are areas of opportunity, right? Because when you set things up that allow people to, people will always take technologies and adapt them to their own ends, mm-hmm. right? So. So no matter what it's intended to do, people will people will say, "Oh, but I could use it for this." You know, I can take I can take Word document and make it into a web page, or I can you know I don't know what they're doing, or I can take you know I can take this VR dog uh, you know that's supposed to be doing you know running after sticks, and I can make it into a a, a messenger that's going to carry a message for I'm just making you know but if I just you know so people are always hacking. We are we are yeah. a, a sort of creature, um, and and another story from that same research project is there were there were certain people who would go into um, another experience that we had called job simulator and they would um, where you were supposed to be working in a convenience store and they would they would try to they would they would um, interestingly enough also very relate to these customers who are little bobbleheads and they'd say oh please and thank you um, but they would try to they wanted to sort of follow the rules they wanted to do what they were supposed to do and there were another group of people who would go in and throw, start chucking things <laughs> and they just start throwing things <laughs> because you could yeah. and so they were sort of pushing the boundaries and they, they were, those were completely legitimate things to do and one, part of what made that world wonderful was that you could do that and that it was available to that and you could sort of break all kinds of social rules that not normally what you would do um, you know, and so, and so I do think one of the things to do is you start to think about, um, you know, that kind of impulse to kind of stretch the boundaries and figure out, you know, the limits of, of a technology are part of, you know, are, mm. are, are part of what people do. So you want to incorporate that into your design. You want to make it either make it available or create the guidelines, depending on the kind of thing, you know, depending on your goals, you either create guidelines that, that, that disable yeah. that and make those guidelines very clear, or you also can create, um, you know, things that, that are available to that kind of manipulation and then invite that kind of exploration. Yeah, I wanted to talk a bit uh, about how this impacts actually innovation processes in- inside companies, because I think it, just as they look at the users as users, that implies that they have the power to design something that people use and and not necessarily giving the power to the people to kind of invite them in the innovation process and uh, get them to look at these disruptions as actually potentials of adding new features or pivoting in a certain direction. Um, and I think this, 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 the hot, this distance between, you know, I have the power to design and you have the power to use, um, it's kind of also being reflected in the way innovation is done, Right. So I was wondering if you've seen some sort of shift moving away from that into more of a, 
inviting more users into innovation process that would allow for a more co-creative approach when it comes to design? You know, I certainly seen, I mean, I mean, I'm not actually, actually sure that it doesn't happen, right? Because, you know, communities and, and feedback are, are very important, right? So oftentimes, you know, companies will incorporate feedback into their next generation or their, mm-hmm. like, so, so, I, I do think that, and I, in some ways, I think that, you know, expectations around what how a product works and, and are very different now than they used to be. You know, it used to be there were suggestion boxes. Now, you, everybody has a, a website where, where you can mm-hmm. offer feedback and people can, you know, negotiate around, you know, what how you use this, what you do with it. And and actually, for, for games, I know that, that having, you know, an active community is critical to the success of a game, mm-hmm. right? Without that community, even though, you know, you think of the game as a game, but without the community around it or that that without people talking about it offline I wouldn't say offline or out of game the game actually doesn't succeed because you actually have to build that culture and build that that community around it so there's all these companies that are that are providing that service Um, but I think in the in the innovation process I mean I think it's always um, it's it's always a tension Right. You know, Mm -hmm. when you can't design, it's difficult to design for nothing. (laughs) Right. And 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 it's also, um, you know, so you have to design for something. But at the same time, how do you make it available to or be available to, uh, you know, seeing how people actually use something or what they actually do with it and then using that to, to, to improve your design? I mean, there is a kind of whole thing, you know, the whole participatory design, you know, which I think I have, you know, sort of mixed mixed thoughts about. <laughs> and maybe many of us do. I don't know. Um, but I think it's really, it's always, you know, it's always a, um, the more you can have that kind of dialectic, right? The more mm-hmm. that you can have that back and forth and both, you know, knowing that you have a, a an intention in mind, um, but also bringing that, you know, hearing what, you know, or, and seeing what happens and being open to something new. I think that that's, um, to me, pretty exciting when you can do that. Yeah. Um, Tell us a bit more about this participatory design and maybe practices like design thinking. Um, What do you think about them from your perspective? So I I would say that that to me, both participatory design and and in particular, I'm thinking about sort of design thinking. Design thinking is a wonderful practice but the it, it actually without the the research to back it up then you're still kind of you are, I don't feel like it's particularly productive so I think um, I've seen it work really well and I've seen it not work really well and I think um, you know in general, for me, you know, even you know, within the company that I work in, you start to talk to the people that you're working with, and I and I, it's very easy to get locked in our own what I think of as a thought box, right? Mm-hmm. Is is you know, we're thinking about VR and this is what VR is, and and now we're brainstorming based on what we think it is, and it's very easy. And, and when you're locked in that thought box, I bore myself to death. <laughs> I'm bored with my ideas before they even started, you know, because. <laughs> I'm just, you know, going around in circles on the same idea. And so one of the things that I, I think that research does when I go out into the world and I talk to some people who come from a very different perspective who are not thinking about technology in the same way I am, I come back and I say, hey, guess what? This is something, you know, this is something, you know, this is this is not what we think it is. It's something different. And then I can start to have a design thinking workshop and be really productive because now it's not what I, it's not, I'm, I'm not locked inside that same box. Mm. And so... 
I think design thinking is a wonderful process to bring out a bunch of ideas, but it doesn't bring out ideas unless you've had some inputs to begin with. And, and if your inputs are, are, are shallow or, or non-existent or just drawing on your own resources, then you're going to come, you're still coming up with the same ideas that, that I, I'm still coming up with the same ideas that bored me to death in the first place. <laughs> right. So that I'm not really, I'm not really coming up with anything new. Um, so I think for me, there's a, a wonderful partnership that can happen between research and design thinking, mm. but that it has to be a partnership. Neither one, um, you know, can really controlling the other. No, that that you really can't do one without the other. Mm-hmm. I think so, uh, but I think they do make a good partnership. Mm-hmm. I've seen know? I've seen design thinking um, now being used uh, in New Zealand very uh, broadly to kind of assist innovation processes, and it's also a way, from what I've seen, for them to kind of put their heads in the water of talking to people so i i I, because for some of these companies it's quite pretty daunting the idea of so how come i'm going out there and just doing observation like don't i have like 10 questions that i need to ask and ask them for permission and give them a gift and you know just just the idea of going unassisted uh just exploring and observing for them it's pretty scary because it's not something common that it's part of the the language of, of doing business research uh, yeah, I think for me, when working with design thinking um, practitioners and trying to put anthropology together, that's kind of like the main challenge, you know, like tr- trying to, to show them the value of participant observation instead of just going through a, you know, a list of questions that you need to take off a, in a 15 minute phone conversation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. So in some ways, it's really valuable just in terms of getting some of that 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 thing, you know, that that experience into into the business. But I, I really do think that that without the sort of research insights, it has um, it, it's a little bit limit. I mean, it's, I, I get frustrated with it when when I see it done without the actual research insights that that help give it shape or, yeah. or give it sort of meat to chew on yeah. then I'm less I'm less impressed with what we get yeah I was wondering just because of your experience and we might have um, a few of our listeners coming from um, the anthropological field being students or PhDs and you know looking for starting a career in this industry um, I was wondering if you can speak a bit to your experience of doing anthropology inside a corporation and what type of you know personality or interests would kind of maybe work in that environment or how, how to even start thinking about this, right? Am I, am I, would it work for me or not? So that's a great question. Um, so I think in some ways for me, right, there's all, there's been trade-offs, you know, I came out of academia and I loved academia. I love teaching. Um, and I, I love students. I like research. Um, I think in some ways there been to me, working in business has been wonderful for the ADD side, right? So the, <laughs> the part of me that's, that's always looking at other people's projects and going, ooh, your project is really cool. My project is dull. Yours is really interesting. So so in the sense that, that you know, you're... You, I've found that, you know, you tend to move very quickly through projects and the, and the timelines are very, very different from, from academic anthropology, right? Mm-hmm. So, and the ways that we think about um, projects and so, so in, in, in academic anthropology, if you didn't spend a year there, then you're really not doing it right. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here, if you're spending more than two weeks, people are going to wonder what's taking you so long, right? So, so the timelines are very, very different and that can create challenges as an academic, you know, as, as a, as a, 
as an anthropologist who likes to take themselves seriously as an anthropologist, it can be very challenging to figure out, well, how is this anthropology if, if I'm doing, you know, targeted recruiting and it's all interview based and I'm not, li- you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, living in a hut making bread. I'm, I'm just sitting in somebody's house and in Chicago. <laughs> how does that work? And what's anthropological about this? And so it, it can be challenging in that sense. And you really have to, um, be willing to to take that on at the same time i think you know um it's very it's invigorating and it's exciting in the sense that um i think it really pushes it pushes us as anthropologists to to take risks right so so we early on i think or, or before we started recording we were talking about how um you know there's a perception of anthropologists just sitting in their in their in their ivory tower and saying it's all just encouraging post-capitalist exploitation, <laughs> you know, or something like this. So, and, and not that that's not true, you know, because I think it's it's totally true. Um, but but the the question is, what do we do about it? And as anthropologists, we've been very averse to making recommendations. So so I think, and I think there's something really productive about. Okay, so if that's true, what should be done? You know, how should a business, you know, if a, if a business wants to do it differently, how would that, that not that I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm not recommending walking into your business and saying capitalism is bad. This is what we should do. Um, but I think, but we do think about, you know, if I think something um, is problematic ethically, how do I, re- how do I create, um, you know, how do I, what do I recommend that we do? Mm-hmm. How should a business do it differently um, given what a business is? Right. And so, I think that that's a worthy challenge. I, I really want to make the world a better place and not just talk yeah. about why I'm frustrated with it. Um, you know. I, I was wondering also if you could if you, if you could speak also to your sense of value um, that you see coming from the business world to you as an anthropologist, because one of the other questions that happen in the academic space, especially for students, is why would a company even consider this valuable? You know, if if... I would go there and, you know, what is the value of the work that I do apply to that space and do they really recognize it and and reward it? So I think um, in my, you know, my experience is limited. I've only worked for one company outside of academia. So, um, so I just want to put that into context. Um, But I think that, um, I think that there's a, from my experience has been that there's a tension that uh, the company companies recognize that they need this. They understand that there are limits to what they can understand through traditional sorts of market research mm-hmm. and survey work and, and that it's not giving them a full enough picture of people or that there are other factors, you know, when you know when you start to think about, you know, how does how does the the uh, the social context shape how people use technologies that actually matters in terms of a product that is going to be successful or not if you don't take into account the fact that people have to go grocery shopping and pick up their kids then and you design a product that does not recognize that fact then then that can be a problem right um, so so they recognize that they need this on the other hand um, you know they often struggle to incorporate it into their practice, right? So, so they recognize it, uh, and I, I think they're not the you know I've seen this happen over and over. They recognize it, they hire you, and then and then oftentimes uh, social scientists um, within um, you know the business feel a little bit. Um, not listened to or undervalued, right? Um, and I think that the responsibility for that goes both ways. You know, we have a responsibility to do a better job of translating what we're understanding into word, you know, into mm-hmm. language and 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 frameworks that 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 are actually helpful and 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 usable. Um, and 
and they too have a responsibility to, you know, to continue to listen and to and to look at this, right? So, so it's not um, it's not a one way street, but it is a, it is a challenge. So, so I think there's a real value, and it's recognized, and that's why. Uh, you know, companies hire mm-hmm. anthropologists and social scientists, but it's also a challenge for them to, to, to incorporate that into their practice. Mm. So, so what would you recommend somebody that is just starting on that path, you know, just graduating? How, what can they do to kind of test the waters out with applied anthropology? So I have two recommendations. One of them is before you graduate, do an internship. Because while you're a student, you actually have certain, at least in the United States, uh, there are internships available and you should check the websites and apply for those. Even Mm -hmm. if you're not quite sure how you fit, um, you should definitely apply because the people, uh, uh, I think having had, you know, it's an opportunity, the the bar is lower to to finding a position. It's temporary. People, you know, companies find it easier to take you on. And it's a real learning opportunity because you find out, is this something I actually enjoy? and like and want to do um, and, so, and in some cases it can lead to actual job offers so those are those are definitely internships while you're still a student don't wait you know I and, and this is not my own experience I did not do this <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but I highly recommend that you do um, and the other thing which I did do is when I started to look at um, you know what you know work outside of academia now I went through a very academic program where, where I didn't know anybody that had gone outside of academia it was just unheard of uh, in my program um, and in fact, even within anthropology, it was not a particularly um, professionalization focused, right? You know, so so that we were just like, let's talk about Levi Strauss and why it matters, <laughs> and so, which was wonderful as learning experience, but not you know not not as helpful in terms of how to get a job. Um, so. So what I do, informational interviews, it's a research project. As an anthropologist, I'm like, I'm a researcher. I can research this. I can find out. And so I spent a lot of time. I started talking to people. And in the same way that I would do a research project, when I would end an interview, uh, you know, a, mm-hmm. a conversation, I would say, and, you know, who else should I talk to? And, and who should I talk to about this? And, and really for me, you know, finding out how do you talk, how do they talk about what they do? What are the kinds of words that they use? How do they, you know, how do they think about what they do? Some of the conversations very much like this podcast, right? Very much mm-hmm. like the kinds of questions we're asking. But what I was trying to understand is, is this a good place for me? Mm-hmm. And, and also listening through it, right? Sometimes you talk to people who say, this is terrible. This is awful. It's really a sellout, right? And, and you have to listen. Well, what kind of person am I talking to? How are they thinking about it? And is that the same way that I would think about it? Mm-hmm. Because... Um, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, I totally agree. And it's probably not for me. And then sometimes you're like, yeah, but I'm a very different person from you. I think about this very differently. Um, so but informational interviews, I highly recommend, um, you know, talking to people and and just, con- you know, talking as, to as many people as you can and really finding out what it is that they do, how they think about it, how they talk about it, how they got there. Mm-hmm. Um and the, it's just been complete. You know, I can't even I can't overstress how valuable I found that, and yeah. still do. I still find it valuable. I think that they're both so. awesome advices that hopefully our listeners would would get a lot of value out of. Because I I know that I've talked to a lot of students um, here in Auckland, and these are questions that are kind of popping up quite um, quite frequently. Um, another thing that we would like to ask you has to do with. Um, the, the role of ethics in building technologies that are surrounding virtual reality or or, or in the space of gaming. And I, I know I, ha- I had a, f- um, a discussion a few weeks ago about um, somebody that was developing um, a, a shooting game. 
mm-hmm. you know, and they had this conversation. It's a startup and they had the conversation inside the company saying, you know, how young should a person be before they're exposed to a game where they're, you know, the main objective of the game is to just shoot people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he was asking me, he said, you as an anthropologist, what is your, what, what, what would be your suggestion? Um, and um, so, yeah, <laughs> I said, I'm a, I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in shooting people at all. <laughs> yeah, but he was asking, he was actually looking for an actual age frame. Like, you know, yeah. is it, is it five? Is it seven? Is it 12? And, uh, and how will this impact our game potential? Because we have to sell this to the investors. And if we're limiting the user base, then, you know, young people are, so there's all of these things surrounding his question and his desire to get a validated um, age slot from me. Um, <laughs> It's actually a really interesting question. I don't know at what age do I know that enculturation happens between ages six and twelve, but I don't know in terms of you know the 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 sort of. I mean, I think the question has to do with separating fiction and truth, right? And reality, right? It has to do with kind of do if if we're promoting a game in which the in which shooting people is is seen as the way to win. Um, at what point um, are are people? Um, better able to translate that beyond you know into a kind of a more of a metaphor and less of a a a, 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 mess- a direct message right mm-hmm. so if you, all you're thinking is like oh aggressive you know great reflexes if what if what i'm learning is that great reflexes um are, are the way to succeed that's that's one thing if what i'm learning is that um you know killing people is a good idea when they get in your way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so or you know so i don't know i mean i think it's a good question um but I thought that way, it takes me back. Take me back before that question. So the um, question around yeah, that was ethics. The, yeah, okay, what ethics. was ethics, right? Because, <laughs> and I think for me, like a, a bigger question underneath this question is having that practice of asking ourselves these ethical questions, right? Like, how do the technologies that we build um, impact um, the person that is using yeah. it, and to which extent, you know, we should be mindful of that impact or kind of control some of the effects and, and ask ourselves deeper questions around, you know, you know, if, like you were saying earlier, like, what does it mean when you are giving a game to shoot somebody? You know, what type of value comes out of that for that person? And should we give, even give that value to them? And if so, in what way? Say, so I do think that we have a kind of responsibility uh, to think about how our technologies are going to be used. Um, I think there is always that tension between, you know, what we were talking about earlier, how people immediately take and use technologies in their own ways, right? <laughs> so they yeah. use it to their own ends. And so I do think, um, and, and you know, even as an anthropologist, oftentimes I'm thinking about, you know, just because I think it's wrong, you know, there, there's some kind of, you know, there's a world in which this seems right. Mm-hmm. And, and part of my job is to understand that rather to uh, rather than to simply say it's wrong and mm-hmm. shut it down. But I will say that nonetheless, I, I do think that we have a responsibility to think about ethics and the ways that our um, our technologies can enable things that we find um, that that are that, that we find wrong, right? And to think about what what is it that we are enabling through these technologies. Mm-hmm. And I think that those um, I think that those are those are important. But I don't think that it's a simple question. I really don't. I, I, neither as an anthropologist nor as a, as a person <laughs> do I think that, that, that that's simple. Um, so I think that, that's, that it becomes problematic, right, um, in terms of the ways that, um, yeah, the ways that technology can work to enable certain things that you or, I, you or I might not agree with. But to what extent do we have a responsibility mm. to allow for diversity of thought and yes. expression 
but where been where and to what extent do we actually have a responsibility to foreclose or or try to sort of yeah. maintain some certain kinds of um, uh, controls over what what kinds of things that enables? So I think yeah. that that's actually um, not um, not a completely simple question. Yeah. But I do think that there you have a role and a responsibility to to think about it and address it and take a position on it, right? That's not simply hands up. It's not my problem what people do with it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think especially if you're building technology that involves communities of people, right? Because to yeah. that extent, the company deals with problems that the government normally deals with or whatever it right. is, that, that form of governance that exists within a community, no? Right. So, and I think that's increasingly the case, right? So, so when we start to see things like, you know, different kinds of global capital flow and Bitcoin and different, you know, and, and even, you know, Facebook and people have talked a lot about Facebook. A great example of technology being used in ways that weren't intended is the use of, you know, Facebook and social media to organize protests, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we see, um, and, and the ways that then it's sort of selectively enforced around certain kinds of things that get eliminated and controlled for, um, and then other things that seem to get through. And that, that, that it's very it's it's definitely a, a, a snarled process, <laughs> um, you know. Um, but it's it's a really important one. I think that that as you as you say, increasingly these are not just questions of products in the way that we used to think about them, but actually in, in shape. It's mm-hmm. about governance, right? And and I think that that's a that's actually very important, right? And so liberties and 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 in various mm-hmm. kinds of ways, right? That's fascinating. No, we we haven't yeah, had really we haven't had yet a, an association between ethics and governance. We want to thank you so much for being part of this podcast with us. It's your your whole area of field is fascinating and um, and yeah, thank you so much, Jamie. Great, thank you. Yeah, it's very great talking to you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.